Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Mitch Landrieu spent 12 years in the Louisiana State Legislature, six as lieutenant governor, eight as the mayor of New Orleans from 2010 to 2018, and also served a two-year term as the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. When he came into office as mayor, he inherited a city that was still sluggishly recovering after Hurricane Katrina. He left office eight years later with the proud, vibrant city having been reborn under his leadership. And after setting an example for the nation, in taking down four Confederate monuments prominently located in New Orleans. In December, Mitch traveled to Israel on AJC Project Interchange. He joins us now to talk about that trip, the value of centrism in our political discourse, and the 2020 presidential race. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Now, AJC regrettably doesn't have an office in New Orleans. I I say regrettably because for my job, I visit a lot of our regional offices, and I certainly wouldn't mind an excuse to travel to New Orleans more frequently. But because especially right now, since it's Mardi Gras, so you might (laughs) want to talk to those folks and get you an office down there. (laughs) Maybe I'll move down there and and open it. Um, (laughs) That's a good idea. (laughs) But but because we don't have a physical presence in your city, I think the deepest you know AJC Mitch Landrew connection really happened when you traveled to Israel with AJC Project Interchange this past December. What motivated you to take that trip with us, and what was the experience in Israel like for you? Well, I was, I, I was the president of the United States Conference of Mayors, and I think AJC wanted to begin to develop a relationship with mayors in America, which is exactly right, uh, and make sure that those of us that are actually on the ground getting the work done got a real firsthand look at the great opportunities the hopes, the challenges, and the difficulties in Israel. And so they sponsored a trip. It was a spectacular trip. It was really one of the highlights of my life. Um, Most of the time in the United States, when we're talking about Israel through the lens of the national media, we're just talking about the peace process. Uh, And of course, that conversation has begun to go on for a very, very long period of time. But of course, the first thing you realize when you get on the ground, besides what a beautiful country it is and how awesome the people are, is how complicated a life is, and how Israel is struggling and succeeding, by the way, in becoming a tech economy. Um, you notice the cultural difference between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, the old and the new. Uh, and of course, you immediately notice the security risk from being in such close proximity, uh, you know, to neighbors that, you know, not often have your well being at the forefront of their mind. You know, we had Mayor Pete Buttigieg on this podcast. You said that right. You're one of the few people that can pronounce his last name. He's a uh, great guy and a good friend of mine. Well, he's, he's a good friend of AJC's as well. I, I'm sure you know that he traveled with us also, and he's a past guest on AJC Passport. And um, one of the things that he said that was really, you know, remarkable for him was he had this opportunity to kind of nerd out over, you know, waste treatment facilities and things like that in Israel. Things that, you know, he said only a mayor can appreciate. New Orleans, obviously is uh, known for public works projects for both good reasons and bad. Did you have any of those moments when you were there? Well, first of all, he's completely correct. You know, one of the things that we've done, mayors in America, is work together to try to find smart and innovative ways 
to solve old problems in our city. I mean, we're mechanics. We fill potholes. We make sure that our police departments are working, and um, we have to create new technology. We have to innovate. And so when we go to other places, we're not really just looking at it from the national security lens or the international relations lens. So when you get, when you get into places, whether it's Israel or, or any of the cities in Israel or in Paris, you're noticing the garbage trucks. You're noticing the traffic flow. You're noticing where the schools are. Um, you know, I particularly, as I was getting around the more rural parts of the country, was looking at the agriculture because in Louisiana, we're a huge agricultural state. And it amazed me how efficient and effective the farming was in Israel. You got into the cities, uh, the wastewater treatment plants, and then, of course, the investment in technology and the innovation that's going on in Israel are all things that you don't really talk much about uh, because you're looking at it through the national security lens, which, of course, is very, very important and something we're very interested in. But mayors see it in a much more multidimensional way. You know, I, I love the way you put that. And one thing that we've seen increasingly is that mayors and other kind of, you know, sub-state level, sub-federal level elected officials are increasingly leading voices in our national conversation. Why is that? What does a good mayor know that a good governor or senator or president, for that matter, does not? Well, first of all, we know that things happen on the ground. Most presidents, even, and senators and representatives, you know, are, are living in a higher realm, if you will. They're mm-hmm. talking about federal policy. They're not responsible for day-to-day mundane but necessarily important things like, is the water clean? Or is the plumbing working? Are the streets working? Where's the creation of jobs coming from? Actually, the physicality of whatever subjects we're talking about, whether it's agriculture or crime and punishment or education, you know, who's going to the schools or the buildings working, you know, physically the ability to move people around, transportation. And mayors see that. Now, of course, one of the pluses and minuses of that is that we, we don't see cities in the international lens immediately. And so when we're building resilient cities, we will talk to mayors of cities in any country that we go to. Uh, we did this when we were on the West Bank. And so we went to Ramallah, which is one of the 100 resilient cities. So is Israel. And so when we're talking to the mayors of both of those cities, we're not really talking about it in the context of the peace process. We're talking about it in terms of how their cities are functioning as it relates to the real human beings that they have an interest to care for. And governors see that a little bit more, but uh, congressmen and senators you know, don't normally see it from that perspective. So it just gives you a much more nuanced view, uh, which makes leads you to the conclusion that we're a whole bunch more alike than we are apart, notwithstanding our international uh, and foreign, you know, policy difficulties that we have. Mm-hmm. Well, Mitch, you are one of those mayors who's become a leading voice in the national conversation and in the conversation about the future of the Democratic Party. One of the issues that we in the Jewish community are watching when it comes to those conversations is where support for Israel in the Democratic Party is going. Uh, For decades, it's been a given that elected officials of both parties would support Israel. But now there are a couple of members of Congress who are openly hostile to the Jewish state. Where's all this heading? Well, you know, it's a very thoughtful and interesting question. First of all, Israel is... Uh, has been and always will be a great ally of the United States and vice versa. We are friends, we're allies, and we should always be. Israel should, um, on our best days, not be a partisan issue. Um, I wouldn't be overly concerned or surprised that um, members either of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party Um, which may not all completely agree all of the time on any issue. I do think 
Uh, and I said this at the time, and I'll say it again. I think when Netanyahu came to the United States and disrespected President Obama by going directly to Congress, he opened up a door that should not have been opened up. Um, and I sense that that's reverberating a little bit, although I think that is probably generally past us. Secondly, notwithstanding the fact that the United States and Israel are great allies and great friends, um, and that we have to always work really hard to put down white supremacy, nationalism, and anti-Semitism, any criticism of Israel at any time isn't necessarily an anti-Semitic uh, criticism. Um, friends criticize friends constructively, and we engage uh, in thoughtful and constructive ways, and we need to be big enough to do those kinds of things to get us to where we need to get, both on the domestic and the national interest front. Do you think that Republicans are generally better friends to Israel, or is that too simplistic a way of looking at things? That's way too simplistic. Yeah, I think that's silly. Uh, I think that that Israel is, as I said, always been an ally and a friend and uh, deserves to be protected, deserves the United States friendship as well. We will continue to do that. We're not always going to agree on everything. And good friends can disagree, hopefully constructively, so that we can each make each other better. Um, But suffice it to say that whoever the prime minister of Israel is is not always going to be loved by everybody in America, just as the president of the United States is not always going to be loved by everybody in Israel. And we have to work through that and over time because it's bigger than whoever might be serving in office at any particular time. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really interesting to think about now, especially as as Israel is in the heat of election season, and there could be a new prime minister for the first time in about a decade, and that might be someone who would better align with the Democratic Party than with the Republican Party, and that could kind of throw our our preconceived notions for a loop. Well, think about if you think about. I mean, over the many many years, uh, with the Camp David peace accords, and then. Uh, what occurred during the Clinton years, you know, not all presidents and prime ministers line up, you know, as evenly as you would like them to do. I mean, what we have to do is think about what each respective national interests are and what our interest is in keeping, you know, peace in the world at the same time of making sure that we're doing it in a, in a humanitarian way. Um, Israel's not a perfect country. And guess what? Neither is the United States of America. <laughs> and, you know, we call each other on that from time to time and we have disagreements, but good friends can do that and we work through them. And that's our philosophy here at AJC as well. You've described yourself as a radical centrist, uh, which is a phrase (laughs) that feels right at home here at AJC, but maybe a bit less at home in the Democratic Party of 2019. Well, let me just reject that premise for a second, because I know that we're in a political season. And for example, by the way, just for the, the public knows this, 435 members of Congress when one member of Congress or two members or three members say something, um, or, and you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, the media the, you know, describes that theory to the entire party that those folks belong to. And, of course, in the country right now, you know, our tendency is to always look towards our differences rather than the things that keep us together. Hmm. That's a huge mistake. We ought to be trying to seek and to find common ground. And my view is that notwithstanding the difficulties we're having in this historical aberration, which is what I think that we're in. Most of the United States of America is a fairly moderate country. Um, we are because we believe in aggressive you know, communication and political debate and robust conversation. From time to time, we're going to have these debates where people on the left and the right pull us one way or the other, as it should. That's what you do. You win you know, the fight 
on, on, on the ground with the ideas that people have. And so there's a lot of attention that's being paid to that. If you look at the election cycle that we just came through, most of the people that wanted the Democratic Party were more moderate than they were far left or far right. But when you get into a presidential race and the primaries start, then the folks on the far right or the far left have a lot more sway. And then it works itself out over time. And the country then writes itself, balances itself, and hopefully keeps moving in the right direction. I am just a more – my view of – of government is is pretty mainstream and pretty moderate in the view of you know the political spectrum in America. I call myself a radical because really what I am is a reformer. You can actually be a very moderate person philosophically, but be very aggressive about changing systems that don't work right now. And I have been an aggressive change agent in every job that I've had, whether it was in the legislature where I served for 16 years, as a lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana for six, or mayor as eight, where we had to completely rebuild the city, and we couldn't build it back the way it was. And we had to be dramatic and aggressive and radical in changing the systems. But we did it in a very thoughtful way. We did it in a way where we had a plan. We did it in a way where we could pay for it. We did it with a strategy. We did it by including a lot of people, but we did it. And we, we kind of hit the marks that we set out to hit. And that's a little bit different. Moderate is confused with being complacent, are trying always to um, water things down so they don't mean anything. That's not what a radical centrist is. A radical centrist says we've got to change, and we've got to change now, but let's be very thoughtful about how we do it. Let's not lose the whole ball of wax, you know, because we're not being thoughtful about taking, you know, incremental steps to where we need to get, but let's just make sure that we're going to keep moving forward in a very thoughtful and aggressive way, but do it in a way that involves everybody in the country, not just some. and doesn't alienate people, but brings people together. I just want to push back a little bit to the way you, you started, because, you know, you point out that there are 435 members of Congress. I'd point out that there are about 435 people who've thrown their hat in the ring for the Democratic nomination for president. And, <laughs> and um, Well, that's true. But among that crowded field, it was when Bernie Sanders launched his campaign that in the first 24 hours, he raised something like $6 million, which shattered fundraising records. So it's clear that to a certain extent, that's where the energy is on the left. And, and that's, you know, I mean, he is a self-described democratic socialist. He's not a radical centrist, certainly. Well, it's not, it's not, it's not, let me just say this. It's amazing. Uh, you know, Bernie has been a master at raising money from small donors, which is spectacular. And it's good for the country. Whether or not that's where the energy is after all of the primaries has yet to be played out. As you have said, there are many, many people that are running. There's a wide range of philosophy on the Democratic side from the left to the right. Not everybody who's going to run in that race is in the race. As you know, um, Mayor Bloomberg is, continues to talk about that as, as Vice President Biden, and they would tend to the more um, side of the party. And so I think you have to you know, play that out. I don't think there's any doubt, though, that the antagonism to President Trump on the Democratic side, and by the way, with a bunch of Republicans and independents now, is pretty aggressive. And I think people want to go in a different direction, and I think somebody uh, else will get elected in 2020. 
So I, I want to put a pin in this for a moment because I do want to come back and hear more about your thoughts on, on that horse race. Um, but I don't want to lose the thread of this radical centrism. And, and I think that one of the areas where you've really you know, staked out a position that, that aligns with what you're talking about is on, on issues of race in America. You've, you know, you've spoken and, and written so movingly on your decision in kind of the waning months of your time as mayor to remove four Confederate monuments in New Orleans. And you said, quote, we can't go around race. We have to go through it. Uh, what do you mean by that? And what steps do Americans need to take to address our history? Well, first of all, thank you for that. A couple of things. Um, racism is America's uh, Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. It, slavery was this nation's original sin. Um, we have not yet um, gone through uh, or finished what the consequences of that were. We as a country have never really directly thought through how we reconcile um, what happened just a very, very short time ago. You can see just with the recent episodes in Virginia uh, and a whole host of others, that we continue not even to be able to talk about race in a thoughtful, consequential way. Um, And so we continue to be torn apart uh, based on race. You also see um, anti-Semitism is part and parcel of that. White nationalism and white separatism, you know, is, is creates fruit of the same poisonous tree. And what I think that we ought to do is be able to talk about our history, why it happened, what the truth was, what we have to do to get to the other side so that everybody has a fair chance in the United States of America and that we don't judge people based on race, on creed, color, sexual orientation, national origin, and that everybody is invited to participate in the greatest democracy um, that ever was. I think that's really, really important. And uh, we just don't do that very well. And so I started an initiative called E Pluribus Unum uh, that's designed to sit down and, and to talk to people about where they are, how to get to the other side, and actually figure out a pathway to the future. So that means going through it, not going over it, not going around it, not, not talking about it, not denying that it occurred. Um, and taking down those Confederate monuments was a really important step uh, in the right direction because, as I said, you can remember history, but you shouldn't revere individuals that tried to dehumanize uh, so many of our fellow Americans. You know, we at AJC have started talking lately about um, creating a coalition of conscience. Our CEO, David Harris, has started to speak about this and will be, you know, stepping it up in the months to come. Uh, people who will stand up proudly and, and loudly for the values of decency, of civility, of, of mutual respect, bipartisanship, unity. Um, in, in your travels around the country, have you found a constituency for that? Is that something that, you know, are we going to meet with a lot of blank stares or are we going to find people who are ready to stand up with us and, as you say, you know, speak out against against all the different manifestations of this hatred? Well, I have a lot of faith in my fellow Americans, and I think that we are going to find our way to common ground. But in order to find it, you have to seek it. I mean, you have to want it. Uh, There are people who want to divide us. We have to say, listen, we win when we come together, and we have to work together uh, in that regard. Um, Also, people learned history a different way or who were taught by their parents a different way can unlearn it because it is learned behavior. And so you have to build muscle memory, and you have to practice it just like you would practice anything if you want to get better at it. But you can't do that unless you acknowledge that you've been doing it wrong to begin with. Uh, And so I do think that we need to be very purposeful uh, going forward in in the next coming years. Now, listen, there have been terrible atrocities uh, throughout our history. The Jewish community can speak to this with greater passion and greater understanding 
uh, than anybody else in the world. And you've got to get to the other side of it. Uh, you have, but you have to basically tell the history as it was so that we actually know what happened. Uh, and then we have to move to the other side. I will say this. Uh, you know, ant- anti-Semitism is part of uh, people hating other individuals because of where they come from, what they look like, uh, and how they pray. Uh, the same thing is true with racism. They are fruit of the same poisonous tree. Um, and I just feel very strongly that I've seen in the United States in the last couple of years a rise of nationalism, white separatism, not only in the United States, but around the world. And uh, I think we need to be aware of that. That is something that we've seen before. That is something that has yielded terrible consequences for humanity. And I think we have to confront it. And we have to we have to deal with it. And the best way that we can do that is to beat it back uh, by meeting somebody who is different from you, getting to know them, uh, recognizing their humanity, and agreeing that we have much more in common, and that we're going to respect everybody's rights, and uh, we're going to make sure that everybody's got opportunity and responsibility. Agreed, Mitch. In our closing minutes, let's turn back to that crowded field of Democrats vying for the presidency. First, what do you think Democratic voters are looking for in a candidate, and also who out there has impressed you so far? Well, I, I don't. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to punt on this issue, but I don't. I don't speak for the Democratic Party uh, on the state level or the national level. I am a Democrat. Um, but you know, my, my question for the presidency is: Who is the best person? to represent all of America, all of the people. Who is the person that can bring uh, everybody together that's looking for common ground? uh, And what is the best for the country as a whole, not just the National Democratic Party? Uh, And so that's the lens that I view all of the candidates from. Um, It's my opinion that Donald Trump has not been a good president for the United States of America and that we need to make a change. He is definitely going to be the Republican nominee. Um, First of all, I'm very impressed with the depth and the breadth of the field. I think that there are a lot of really good candidates uh, in that race. I would, if anybody asks my advice, uh, and it's worth, you know, what you're paying for it, uh, (laughs) I would prefer to vote both with our hearts and our heads, not just our hearts. Um, We have a tendency to be enamored um, you know, just with a heart and to vote with passion, because uh, I believe that we have to govern with responsibility. We have to elect somebody uh, that more likely than not has good and relevant experience, uh, not only on the legislative side, but the executive side as well. So somebody that's got great experience. I would um, tend to want to be for somebody that can stabilize the United States position uh, both at home and abroad immediately, uh, that has stature, that has dignity, um, and that has a level of experience not only on the domestic side but the international side uh, as well. So, you know, once you start thinking about those things, hopefully we'll see the candidates, you know, work towards that goal. It's not just – it's about two things. It's not just about philosophy, what you believe, but how you're going to get things done. And that's what mayors bring to the table because we can't – we just don't have the freedom just to talk. We actually have to make things happen. So we have lots of people that tell us what to do. Mayors mostly will ask, well, how am I going to do that? How am I going to pay for that? When are we going to get that done? Who's going to do it? What's it going to look like when we finish? Um, And so, therefore, we have to advocate with responsibility. And I'm hoping that, you know, all the candidates will not just speak about philosophy, but just the the, the how-to to actually govern the country, bring it together, and move us ahead from where we are to where we need to be. Mitch, a lot of very smart people have said that you'd be a very strong candidate in that primary. You've said that you're not running. Is there anything that might lead you to throw your hat in the ring? Well, first of all, I'm very flattered by that. You can't lie about that. 
my sense of it is this is not the right time for me. Uh, my expectation is that I'll, I will not be um, in the race. Uh, as a politician, one of the things you learn very early in your life is never to say never. Lots of crazy things can happen. Who knows? But but my expectation is that um, that I won't be in this in this race. All right. Well, whatever your next act does end up to be in in your work now at E Pluribus Unum, we look forward to working with you and seeing many great things to come. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Well, thanks so much. I sure appreciate it. It's time for our special Israeli elections segment. Each week through the upcoming general elections on April 9th, we'll be bringing you an exclusive update on the race to determine who will be the next occupant of the prime minister's residence on Balfour Street in Jerusalem. This is the Battle for Balfour. If you're looking for a basic primer on the Israeli elections, please check out the January 3rd episode of AJC Passport featuring Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post. Joining us today on the Battle for Balfour is Avital Leibovich, the director of AJC Jerusalem. Avital, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Sophie. So in Israel last week, there was a major filing deadline in advance of the elections on April 9th. The parties needed to have their lists, their full lists of candidates uh, registered. And there was this great big flurry of activity, including two very high profile mergers of parties. So let's just take this chronologically. Can you tell us about the first merger, which was the one on the right? What happened there? Well, basically, since uh, Bennett left the party, uh, the Baita UD party, uh, this actually uh, splits the national religious uh, living uh, in Israel and the settlements uh, to a few groups. And they understood that they would have to somehow join forces in order to, uh, to reach a higher number of votes and uh, therefore a higher number of uh, mandates. So there were a few mergers of a few, I would say, very right-wing parties. Um, Additionally, Netanyahu, the head of the Likud, um, had some sort of an agreement with a very right-wing new party called um, uh, the uh, Otsmayudit Party, which stands for the Jewish power, Jewish strength, and uh, decided that he will... um, actually save some seats for them in the next government, and in return they will somehow bring him their votes as well. So these are the two major mergers that took place on the right-wing side. On the center-left, we were actually witnessing something totally different, and that is uh, a new party and a less new party uh, that merged. The new party is uh, uh, the uh, Benny Gantz's party, Hosen Israel, Israel's Resilience. Uh, they uh, understood that they have a major issue, which is quite problematic, which is they don't didn't have any offices uh, all across the country since they are very new. They're two months or three months old. And the uh, other party, which they merged with, Yair Lapid's party, Yesh Atid, uh, and they are quite uh, settled all over the country. They have more than 120 offices. So they understood that in order to create a major center block, they have to merge. And this is something quite revolutionary uh, because um, it's not only about merging, but it's also about 
uh, alternating the lead of the party. And uh, so for the two years, uh, the head of the party will be Benny Gantz. He will be the prime minister, should the party be the one building the next government. And the next, uh, the year and a half after that, Yair Lapid has agreed to lead the party. The purpose of these mergers, at the end of the day, is to create some sort of uh, a serious major block, which will then take a lead and uh, will uh, facilitate uh, the building of the government. So it's it's interesting to go back to the first merger. It sounds like should Prime Minister Netanyahu be the person at the end of the day called upon to form the new coalition, that the upcoming government would actually be a further right government, a more right wing government than the one that he dissolved a few months back. Does that sound accurate to you? I'm not sure. I think it's going to be quite similar. If Netanyahu is the one uh, to build the next government, I would uh, predict and say it will be more of the until now. Um, looking at the recent polls of a few days ago, and just we need to keep in mind that the polls are relevant to the day and sometimes to the hour they have been taken, uh, there is more or less some sort of an equality between the right block and the center-left block in terms of mandates, which brings us to another option, which is just in the recent days has been uh, surfacing, and that is a unity government. We had in the past a few governments which were unity government. Namely, uh, the government is built on uh, various parties, from the left, from the center, and from the right, creating a wide coalition. This is actually the biggest desire of any government, because this way you have a vast majority to uh, pass uh, different votes, and there, there could be uh, a greater stability in such a government. We're still far from that option, but uh, this is uh, something that has been surfacing in, in recent days just because of this equal uh, result in the polls. Fascinating. Are there any other major insights from this filing deadline last week? I saw a lot about the lack of gender parity on various lists, you know, maybe questions about what it meant that the Arab parties were running separately instead of a joint party. Is there anything, uh, anything else, any other highlights that you would pull out for our listeners? Yeah, so if you mention the Arab parties, then I can mention that in the last government, the fact that three Arab parties joined forces and ran together led them, A, to be the third largest party in the government, and B, uh, to have two more mandates than before. So that was quite significant, and this also has another reason for it. So not only the unification, but also the Arab sector uh, percentage of voters is increasing. Uh, relatively to the Jewish population, it's still lower a bit, but still it's quite high relative to, let's say, the U.S., for example. So I can tell you that if in 2013 election 54% of the Arabs voted, in 2015, we're talking about 63%. So this is something which uh, is some kind of a trend we are monitoring, and I think this will uh, further uh, increase. Now here, uh, we are not talking anymore about the big joint Arab party this time, at least for now. Uh, we are looking at two parties, uh, each consisting of a few smaller Arab parties, 
Um, the estimation currently is the number of mandates for these parties would be uh, altogether somewhat between 14 to, uh, to 18 mandates in the Arab uh, sector. By the way, just an interesting fact that um, there is some percentage, it's not a high percentage, but there is a percentage of the Arab voters who prefer to vote for Jewish parties, not for Arab parties. And that's also an interesting fact. Well, thank you very much, Avital, for sharing that perspective with us. And we look forward to uh, checking back in with you as the election approaches on April 9th. With pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Britain. Good for the Jews? Britain took a major step toward ending an international farce this week. For too long, many European countries have created an artificial division between the so-called military and political wings of the terrorist organization Hezbollah. They have done that because in addition to being an Iranian terror proxy, in addition to bombing and shooting and hijacking and launching rockets at civilians and others in Lebanon, Israel, the UK, Argentina, Panama, Bulgaria, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia, in addition to all of that, Hezbollah also acts as a political party in Lebanese domestic politics. Everyone knows that this is a farce, including Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah, who has said as much previously. This week, British Home Secretary Sajid Javid announced that the UK would do away with that false distinction and designate all of Hezbollah a terrorist organization. In 2008, Britain led Europe in designating the military wing of Hezbollah. Now it is leading again in recognizing what we at AJC have long known and have pushed around the globe. Hezbollah is a terrorist organization through and through. Bravo to Britain for joining the U.S., Canada, the Netherlands, Israel, the Arab League, and the Gulf Cooperation Council in taking this important step. We'll be making sure that other countries soon follow suit. That will be, and indeed, Britain already is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.